you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. And this week we are finally checking one of the main boxes on my to-do list. One of the main things that I've just been like, it's kind of ridiculous that we haven't done this yet. And that's me blaming me specifically because I knew I would be the one to do it, but just had not got around to it. But today, we are finally going to be talking about Venom, most specifically the series Venom Lethal Protector from 1993. This is Venom's first ever solo. It's an easy classic pick. Figured I would go with probably the obvious choice, for our first time talking Venom, but there's a lot to dive into. And before we really get into the series itself, I suppose I'll just go ahead and ask, what are your general personal history with our favorite gooey boy? With Venom? Um, So when I was a kid, I was like my first Spider-Man comic was Ultimate Spider-Man. And that was the first one where I read anything with Venom because, like, the first Spider-Man stuff I read was a couple random issues, none of which featured Venom, uh, including some from the JMS, JRR, JR, JR run, which, like, doesn't have Venom in it. And then I read the classic 60s stuff that doesn't have Venom in it because he's from the very late 80s. So when Ultimate Spider-Man did Venom, that's how I met him, and I really love Ultimate Venom. In fact, we'll be talking about that next week as part of Spider-Man Month. So when I finally got round to meeting the 616 version of Eddie Brock, I didn't like him. I don't like this guy. I think he's a dickhead. I think he's a massive fucking hypocrite, and like, I don't think the character makes sense as a quote-unquote anti-hero. Because in his introduction, he's such an awful piece of shit. (laughs) And, like, they try so hard. And I can see how he has appeal. Like, he's goofy. He's funny. The, like, back and forth between Eddie and the symbiote and their, like, relationship is compelling and interesting. But, like, this is a guy who in his second appearance, you know killed a god who was just doing his job of imprisoning the giant goop monster that has already tried to kill people and claims that he's protecting innocence five minutes later and you're like what the fuck are you talking about you just brained a dude (laughs) which comes up in this oddly enough uh michelini trying to figure out how the fuck they can make this character a hero now that he's insanely popular But yeah, and then, you know, Spider-Man 3 happened, which pretty solidified me on the anti-Venom train for a long time. I've turned around a bit. 
I I think I get it now. He's never gonna be for me, but like I get it. Solo Venom is much better, I think, when you just ignore the Spider-Man of it all. Like the best version of Venom, where like Venom is an anti-hero, is the movies in the Sony universe of Marvel characters. The the Sunk, which is its official name. The Sunk. Where he's gonna be crossing over with Morbius and lead of a solo movie, Craven the Hunter. God. In the sunk. <laughs> I know. Like, the only one of these movies that has any value at all was the Venom movies, because they're, like, goofy and fun on purpose. Craven is, like, hard enough to make compelling in a regular Spider-Man story. They've done it exactly once. And ever since then, every Craven story is just trying to do Craven's last hunt again. And they never can. Like, even good adaptations, like the most recent video game, I'm like, I mean, sure, this is pretty close, but it's not it's not Craven's Last Hunt, the only good Craven story. Of the two of us, I think it's fair to say I am the bigger Venom fan, although I don't have a long history with the character by any means. Growing up, I always just sort of put him in the same mental box is the punisher of just being like oh here are 90s characters that i mostly associate with a hyper specific obnoxious portion of comics fans and now i've changed my mind the main sort of driving force and interest and me sort of reconsidering things would be the Venom movies, the Tom Hardy of it all, which I love those movies and have since been more willing to go back and try out a lot of the various comics, which I think a lot of things we're going to agree on regardless, because even though I've grown to appreciate the character more, I still think a lot of old Venom comics are bad and the aspects of the character that I find most interesting I find don't get nearly enough attention most often but the movie did sell me on the character between the weird freaky goopy sexiness of just the literal sentient goo all over Tom Hardy and then just the humor, the sort of potential in the relationship between symbiotes and symbiote, the campy drama of just the gigantic teeth and the tongue and the drool. And yeah, I think that now that I am more acquainted with the character, I'm like, oh, there's actually a lot of room for this thing to be freakish and funny and sexy, which I don't think most Venom comics actually are, but... No, I like, I think this one is, is about as close as you can get to those movies. I mean, you can tell because the first film, this is the comic they read when they wrote that script. The Life Foundation, Carlton Drake, Riot, it's all in this. And I think Riot is, like, only in this. <laughs> does that guy ever show up again? I know Scream does. A little. 
I assume, but never in a way that matters, which is also sort of a thing about it. Like, we'll get into all the symbiotes, but it's like, I know there's a bunch of fucking lore, and there's been a million Venom series since this one, but really, if they're not Venom or Carnage, the other symbiotes don't matter. Like, I know that you like Scream, and occasionally Scream is okay, but that's about it. I like Scream because she's in the Universal ride, to be clear. I know nothing about Scream. I googled Scream and read her Wikipedia article earlier today, and my end, like, my conclusion on Scream is, based on the Wikipedia article, every paragraph sounds like it's talking about a different character. So she just is just a look. She's a look, and then she'll show up for a plot where she's a minor part of the story because it's cool to have Lady Carnage is essentially her design, just with yellow instead of black. And the hair. The hair is great. But uh, no, my affection for Scream comes entirely from the Spider-Man ride in Universal, uh, which she's just the most random fucking thing in it. You're like, why is this here? Everyone riding the ride is like, oh yes, Electro? Okay. Doc Ock? Yep, I know him. Hobgoblin? You can kind of work it out, even if you don't know Hobgoblin. You're like, oh, it's Green Goblin, but orange. Hydro Man, which I think throws people a little bit. And then randomly, this toothy, yelly little lady who just sort of snarls and is all, like, Venom-looking-like, but it's a woman. And I was so confused by her as a kid. And I'm like, oh, okay, she is just Venom, but a woman. And, like, not interesting beyond that uh the the original concept for venom was that it was a woman who like miscarried uh like during a spider-man fight like spider-man trying to rescue her from a thing or whatever but she like miscarried in the fight and that's why she hates spider-man was the original concept and it got nixed because they didn't want to have spider-man beating the shit out of a woman on a regular basis which i feel like that ignores some pre-existing Spider-Man characters. But, like, yeah. This is why Eddie Brock comes out of nowhere, which is the other reason I always disliked Eddie Brock, is because his first appearance in the comics is as Venom. He has a whole, like, backstory that is retconned in that just sort of happens about Spider-Man seeing it and, like, being involved in it. And so it just, I'm like, you have murderous hate for a guy you never met because he caught a serial killer? Like, he found the actual guy and stopped him killing people, so you hate him. Yeah, it's kind of slapdash. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, we got to get him in for, was ASM 300. But this is, this is Venom's solo series, which is much better than Amazing Spider-Man 300. And I say that as someone with an Amazing Spider-Man 300 t-shirt. Yeah, I'll go ahead and, uh... Do the obligatory creator roll call now that we're getting to the comic itself. This is written by David Michelini, grand Spider-Man scribe of the 80s and 90s. We have Marie Javens as colorist for all of the issues. And when it comes to the art and the lettering, things get a bit more complicated. 
we have Richard Starkings credited as letterer on issues one through five, along with Rick Parker credited on issues two and then five through six. Art-wise, penciler Mark Bagley on the first half of the series, who is then replaced by Ron Lim for the latter half. And as far as inkers go, Sam De La Rosa is credited on the entire series, with Al Milgram also being credited on the first four issues. So it's one of those series where the creative team shifts up a fair amount, particularly on the visuals, and we will certainly have that to talk about in terms of how that affects our feelings on the overall quality post those sort of artist shifts. But to just kick things off at the very beginning, I do just want to take a minute to appreciate the cover to Venom Lethal Protector number one, which has the holographic effect on the background, the super shiny sort of red against black that just looks really nice when you move the comic in the light or whatever. You know, those sorts of effects get a bad rap because of how overused they got, but it actually looks cool here. We have Venom just front and center looking cool with his green, gooey, drooling mouth and his gigantic teeth. And... In the 90s, at this period, Marvel covers would usually have a small square, or I suppose it's technically a rectangle, it's not perfectly square, but they'd have a small rectangle that's sort of like postage stamp shaped in the bottom left corner, and the contents would vary Oftentimes, it would be something about, like, an anniversary. So it would say, like, X-Men 30th Anniversary or Avengers 30th Anniversary or, like, whatever comic property was being commemorated and then say, like, an appropriate little logo or, you know, sometimes different things from that. But point being there, it often have these little stamp size boxes in the corner. and the little stamp box on the cover of Venom Lethal Protector number one is of a drawing of Spider-Man saying, oh man, and covering his face with his hand as if exasperated at the sight that Venom is getting his own comic. Yeah, it's a great cover. I, I agree. I do think that the holographic gets a bad rap, but like, some of the holographic covers are really good because I'm also thinking of um, Gen X number one has a great holographic cover. It is excellent, yeah. Uh, I think that the quality of a holographic cover depends A, on the quality of the artist, just like any cover does, and B, on designing the cover to work even if it isn't holographic. Because I have a digital version here at the moment, and the cover looks great still because the red and the black on the webs in the background still looks neat. You know, yeah. there's enough design elements there. It's not just a, a big shiny sheen. There's actually something going on. I think that's the key. Yeah. And like, 
the colors still pop really well against the foreground, even if you can't see the shine in person. It's just like all really well composed, even if you don't get the shiny. I think the rest of the covers on this series are just kind of bland. I don't know if you disagree or if you have any strong thoughts on any of the rest of them. I don't know that I would say any of them are like outright bad, but the rest of the series covers are just less iconic. They're just sort of standard fare, like, yep, that's Venom, or yep, those are the other symbiotes, but the rest of the covers don't really excite me in the same way. Well, they are all drawn by Mark Bagley, so it, there is an automatic level of excitement that I feel when I look at them. But other than that, I would agree. Yeah. Speaking of Mark Bagley, should we go ahead and just get it out of the way and talk about how major the shift from Bagley to Lim feels? I feel bad for Lim just because, like, Bagley, for me, is the definitive Spider-Man artist. Now, this is my ultimate Spider-Man history here, but frankly, looking at this earlier stuff that he did for the character, because he wrote, he did a lot of Spider-Man and, like, related art, like this Venom stuff, before he did even Ultimate Spider-Man, which he did a a literally record-breaking run on Ultimate Spider-Man. And it's all so fucking good. I would hate to be the guy drawing anything Spider-related after Mark Bagley's done it. But yeah, it's, it's a tremendous shift, especially since I do think that, like, this is where the Venom design solidifies. Because unless I am mistaken, there's only the two Michelini McFarlane stories before this. And in the very first, like, and McFarlane created Venom, you know, the, the like, presumably the design element of having the mouth and stuff was his idea. But, like, this is where Bagley comes in and makes it work like the the really sharp oversized teeth the mouth the the green slime like this is the classic venom look and it's it's from bagley it's not from mcfarlane oh well no they've also done the carnage story which was bagley i lied i lied duh carnage happens before this so there were like three venom stories when bagley designed carnage his redesign of venom for that story then is the definitive venom Yeah, it's still Bagley really sort of tweaking and making the design what I think of when I think of the character. Like, when people draw Venom now, and they're like, I'm gonna draw the classic Venom design, they're drawing this. Yeah. Like, does your copy of issue one have the, um, the set of, like, the the gallery in the back of Bagley drawing Venom? Uh, that's just in the digital version on Marvel Unlimited. I assume it was probably included in like a reprint at some point, but it's not in like the original print first version of this story that I have. Okay. Well, there's an amazing, um, one of the, like one of the images is just absolutely amazing. Like, shot of the symbiote sort of forming over Eddie's face and it's doing that thing from the Venom trailer 
where half of the face is Venom and half of the face is Eddie, but it's still in motion and you've got all of like the tendrils around the head sort of pulling around and you can feel the motion of it. The ten- the mouth is like half formed around Eddie's jaw. Like the implication is that like Eddie's chin is the base of this tongue when the soul forms around him. And like the teeth are coming out of the dark like symbiote goo and sort of half formed the mouth and the upper jaw. It's great. It's the kind of uh like choices with Venom's design that eventually lead to the ultimate Venom, which is my preferred Venom look, where like there's teeth coming out of just about every bit and it's constantly changing and oozing and like he's never quite the same in any image. So like you can see Bagley already starting to head towards that kind of a visual, which I love. Just fantastic art. It's it's so good. Yeah, I think one of the most important aspects to making a Venom that looks visually appealing is emphasis on the sort of like stretchy, flexible, inhuman aspects and potential for the symbiote and just like the way that all of that goo can move around and just be a shifting transformative mass over the body. And I think that trait is pretty much universally present across all of the best Venom artists to various degrees from, you know, we're talking about Bagley doing it here. We'll later do more fits in his ultimate stuff. But then also in the likes of, say, like Humberto Ramos and other sorts of 2000s Venom, all the Venom images that I like always really dive into that. I'll also, though, shout out a bit about how Eddie Brock looks in these issues in the first half as done by Mark Bagley. The mullet. (laughs) Yes, the mullet. As I said earlier. I got into Venom because of the Venom movie, actual case of a comic book movie making someone more interested in the comics. And like any other gay man on the face of the earth, I was just like, oh, wow, he's hot. And just, you know, the literal hotness of Tom Hardy, the intrinsic eroticism of the Venom symbiote. and. While Mark Bagley, not to make a definitive statement, because obviously I can't speak for him, but looking at this art in this series, I never get the sense that Bagley is ever consciously trying for any sort of Eddie Brock sex symbol sort of stuff, and it never goes all the way there, but we do still get some movement in that direction which i appreciate specifically in the way that these symbiotes can mimic clothing and we get eddie brock early on in issue one walking around with this mullet in these blue sweatpants with a crop top 
back at more or less the end of the period where like straight men could walk around in crop tops and not be called gay. And yeah, just these wonderful late 80s, early 90s outfits. And then, of course, there's the obligatory shots throughout when Venom gets shot with a stun blast, a like sonic gun, or when the symbiote is reacting to fire. Just any of those times when the symbiote is being harmed and sort of its connection to Brock is being undermined, I suppose. And you just get these shots of like a naked man with strategically placed bits of goop to prevent the Comics Code of 40 from complaining, you know? It's just like a big buff Eddie Brock with just goop all over him. We do see enough to know for a fact that Eddie is going commando under the symbiote. Yeah, like, any clothes are always just the symbiotes making them. I mean, if your best friend was also, like, a fully functioning, um, like, fashion production line, I would take advantage of that. Why would you wear anything else? Absolutely, yeah. And, um, yeah, no, there's, there's plenty of shots where you're like, oh, yeah, that's his, uh, that's his lower hip, and that's the top of his thighs. Those would have to, he, he, like, there's very little he could be wearing that would fit under what we're able to see here. So they make sure you know he is naked under that. Yeah. I'm trying not to belabor the point too much. And, you know, like I said, Bagley doesn't seem to be really consciously going for it. But there are a couple points where it's like, very nice, very nice composition choices and how we are framing this goopy body. <laughs> I do also like specifically the way that Bagley does the drooling. Like this specifically, this is on the colorist as well. Um, Murray Javens, Javens, not sure on the pronunciation, but... The drool that's specifically this, like, acidic-looking green, like a sort of, like, radioactive waste sort of green, you know, just selling the monstrousness of it is fun to me. Yeah, they've quit doing that lately. I've been reading the Kate's run because I have, well, I, I have mixed feelings about it so far, so... Like, I was going to make a, a I hate myself joke, but, like, it's not awful. It's fine. So I guess I'm, like, lukewarm about myself. And it is just the classic Venom design in that, except, yeah, the, the green slime from the mouth is gone. And it's not quite as good. I think my main problem with that run is the degree to which it wants to take Venom and Venom lore seriously to the point where there's like virtually no humor in it and i want venom to be a bit silly yeah it's very much a successor to like the rick remender run with flash thompson but like the flash thompson stuff which i do like is notable because it's doing an entirely different thing with venom than most venom stuff 
And I think when you have Venom with Eddie, you do need to just have a bit of fun with it. Because Eddie's kind of the worst in a way that, like, Flash Thompson isn't. So Flash Thompson having to deal with this in a serious manner feels very different from you trying to do the same thing with Eddie Brock. Yeah. With Eddie, a large amount of the appeal is just, here is this complete and total fuck-up who's largely an asshole but still has some sense of moral compass and isn't entirely bad, but is still just this utter mess of a person and his dependent relationship on his power-up slash costume slash lover slash dependent slash dependee and the symbiote by nature of being a symbiote, you know, there is the whole interconnected relationship aspect of it that is inherent to the character and is just interesting thematically. And is that relationship necessarily healthy? No, but it's still interesting, you know, all the more so for it not necessarily even being completely healthy. And I just like the dichotomy between, like, the monstrousness and the humor of it. One of my favorite moments in this series is literally on, like, page four when Venom has descended upon this alley and taken down this guy who was attacking a woman, attempting to mug her, and then when she doesn't have money implying that he'll have to get her to pay in some other way, alluding to, like, sexual violence. And Venom swoops down from the sky, takes this bitch out, and I'll just go ahead and do a little bit of a reading. Now you'll do nothing but decay, running rivulets of rot and corruption, mingling with the rest of the filth in the sewers of... And then he turns and looks at the woman. Oh, forgive us, we're being rude. Hi, we're Venom. And <laughs> it's this panel where it's hard to describe the facial expression because it's Venom, so it's not a standard human face. But Bagley's... sheepish. Yeah, like Bagley still manages to make this monster look sheepish. And... He then, like, picks up the woman's purse and hands it to her and is smiling and tapping her on the head, telling her that she's safe now and there's no need to thank him because her safety is reward enough. And he just, like, bounds away about his business. And then we just cut back to the woman crying and running away screaming after this monster has just joyously tapped her on the head. And even though he saved her, she still just freaked the fuck out because he is, in fact, a gigantic, violent, scary monster. He's, like, nearly seven feet tall. He has, uh... I, I mean, it's Venom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this is great. This is what the character should just always be like. I, I'm officially annoyed whenever Eddie Brock isn't like this in 616, because this is the best way to do him. He has a great unintentional humor about him. 
like Venom like, takes himself seriously, but we can't fully. It's like the one of the best jokes in Squirrel Girl is when Punisher is in the book for exactly one panel, and the narrative captions say, "Oh, look, it's the Punisher. He's a really, really serious character, which you can tell because he's put a skull on every single one of his shirts, so you know to take him seriously." That should be Venom. And that sort of humor also helps sort of counteract the 90s edge sort of reputation that, at least for me, made the character hard to engage with and get interested in growing up. And I think a lot of the most mediocre Venom comics I've read since are the ones that sort of lose that sense of humor. But... Moving beyond the comedy of it, um, with how much we have to say and have already had to say about Venom, etc., etc., I'm not really worried about trying to do a play-by-play of the plot to this series, because I think just like the character and the art, etc., etc., are more interesting, and there will be more characters introduced to talk about. Plus, I think... Really, what there is to say about the plot is simply just that there is a shitload going on and there is antagonist after antagonist after antagonist. And I don't think this is a particularly polished and well-executed story by any means. I think it relies pretty heavily on the art and the humor. What do you think? I would agree. It it feels very much like the first Venom movie in that, like, which, you know, pulls from this comic pretty significantly. We already talked about that. The humor and just, like, the presentation is the thing that has any value. Like, no one cares about Carlton Drake and the Life Foundation. Or, um, Reese, whatever his name is, Reese in this. Like, whatever. Uh, we do get the sort of five new symbiotes, and and they look cool, but they all just kind of look like Carnage. They look cool because Carnage looks cool. You know, there's a lot of Venom fighting robots, and I, I do quite like, I will say, I really like that his goal in the story is to protect, like, this whole society of houseless people that are living in... I mean, this is very strange. Like a chunk of 1800 San Francisco that had fallen under the city in an earthquake, but is still, like, basically intact and is now where they're all living, which is an insane concept. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I'm always going to be happy when the comic is about, like, we got to take out the greedy capitalists, which is just what the Life Foundation is. Oh, uh, we mm. also have the jury. Yeah. Who should interest me, but don't. <laughs> yeah, we have the Life Foundation and the jury and all the symbiotes and Spider-Man as an antagonist slash co-lead. I think it's just way too much for six issues, pacing-wise, for any of the characters to really feel fully properly utilized themselves but i do agree with liking just like some of the conceits here of like 
the buried underground section of post-earthquake San Francisco from like a century ago. It is a bizarre idea, but it's fun. I like it. You know, the overall ongoing theme of Eddie wanting to protect innocence, even if he doesn't necessarily actually consistently do that, you know, is an important part of the plot. And in terms of making him an anti-hero, feels like the series' sort of main mission statement and main objective that it has to accomplish, which... I think it works overall, you know, like I don't think that it's necessarily really setting out to even make the reader believe all these great things about Eddie Brock so much as just like convey Eddie's own sense of self and at least that he is committed to and believes in his own specific set of morals. What did you think of... Spider-Man's involvement and just like his general heavy presence and if you felt like he contributed much or not. I think Spider-Man's here because they were still kind of worried about selling the series just on Venom. I feel like he doesn't have much to do until like maybe the final two issues. Like I think it almost would have worked better if Spider-Man is only in like the last two issues where he's heard about what Venom's doing in San Francisco on the news and comes to stop him and then has that turnaround around where he's like, oh, actually, Venom's trying to do a good thing right now, so I'll help him, which is essentially what happens, but it takes so long, and you're just like, yeah, but Spider-Man, look at, look at Carlton Drake. Why aren't you immediately going, oh, yeah, this guy's clearly up to no good. Look at this guy. Or Reese. I keep calling him Carlton Drake because that's the guy from the movie, I think. And he's also in this, but it's like this different guy named Reese. Or is Reese the guy from the movie? I don't know. But like, he's already fought the Life Foundation in his own book. Like, the Life Foundation is just an ongoing Michelini like plotline. Yeah, I just feel like he should have just been in it a bit less. Like, I think it's useful to have him here to sort of be a voice on how much Eddie has at least changed in his goals that he's prioritizing but i don't think you need him until like issue four at the earliest yeah i'm sure you're right about it largely being him there to help sell the book i think he largely is also serving as just like a figure to look at the reader and sort of just like state out loud how we're supposed to feel about venom just the whole arc of he's crazy, he's this murderous killer, but is he actually better than I thought he was? I'm still nervous around him, but he kept his promise and he did try to protect those people. You know, he's largely just sort of monologuing about what Marvel is trying to make the character into, but with regards to the other symbiotes, their inclusion is very ambitious and I don't think is particularly beneficial to their sake or the quality of the book as a whole because this, like we've said, is Venom's first solo book 
it has a lot of work to do to try and sell Venom as a protagonist, not as just a enemy for Spider-Man to fight, but as the headlining figure of his own book. And for some reason, the series that's already tasked with doing that is like, what if we introduced not just one, but five more fucking symbiotes? And we've talked about Scream the most individually, but the thing to understand about these additional symbiotes and how much attention they get and differentiation is that they're not even named here. We get five whole new symbiotes, and unless I'm really forgetting, I don't think any of them get their names here. Like, you'd have to Wikipedia search them to find out, like, what they're actually called now. The experience of reading is basically just, okay, there's female carnage. There's female carnage, but in magenta. Then there's a spiky orange one, a green one, and then one that's gray. I don't think they do enough sort of differentiation in these character designs for a few of them. Like we've said, like Scream looks good. And then I think like the orange one looks good and is sort of notably like sharp and pointy and like elongated hands and such. But... I think they just bit off more than they could chew trying to introduce five symbiotes all at once, and we really don't get to know any of them. What do you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, a couple of these symbiotes go on to more notable roles in the future, Um, in that Riot gets to be the main villain of the first Venom movie, a move that still makes me laugh because it's just like, the final battle of that movie, you're like, okay, who the fuck is who? Because Venom doesn't have the spider in that movie. So it's just black goop monster versus dark gray goop monster at night. <laughs> Scream, obviously, classic member of the Universal uh, ride, which I love. And then, funnily enough, looking at the green guy, I'm now just realizing that he is the visual design basis for the most frustrating enemy goons in Spider-Man 2 on the PS5. The green fucking symbiotes that dodge every time you try to hit them. The fuckers. Beyond that, yeah, they're, they're really whatever. I think it should have just been Scream. You could just replace these five with Scream. Especially since, like, you know, the intro is, here's five symbiotes fighting... Spider-Man and Venom, and Venom doesn't even have the symbiote at this point, and they still take out all five of them? Like, when Carnage was introduced, you needed these two to team up to beat him. Carnage is a character I really do not like, but he's a threat. I'm convinced that when Carnage shows up, you know, that's a problem. These guys are chumps! That's not a way to introduce a, a new sort of set of villains. I don't know whether they just did this to put them on the cover and be like, hey, hey look, Symbiote's a bit like how Spider-Man is in more of this book than he should be because then they can put him on the cover. Like, were they just trying to convince people, you know, the next Carnage is right here in this one? 
I think it's a shame too, because I do think that like Scream, who has the most page time out of all of these, maybe if she had all of the page time, she could be a character people remember now, other than me. But um, I doubt it with this. Like having the five of them was a mistake. There's too many. It makes me question if it was an editorial drive to be like, symbiotes are hot, keep on churning them out, you know, which, whether if that's literally the case or not, it still results in the same sort of half-baked, premature feeling of like, okay, we have these new concepts and lore we can play with, regarding these mysterious aliens and oh from carnage we know that the symbiote can basically have babies but we're going to explicitly state on panel oh these are all the rest of the babies those were all the venom eggs that there were this is it we're gonna shove all five in at once we're not even gonna name them the gray one has like no distinctive features whatsoever in how the goop moves or anything just that's a gray dude and yeah they go down like chumps they like justify it in narrative by being like oh these are much less experienced fighters than spidey and venom and like in the story it makes sense but also because we don't have time to get to know them as characters. Combining that with the fact that they never feel like a threat just makes them feel like all the more of duds and questionable uses of page time when, although the other human antagonists aren't outright interesting, you know, like, I don't love them. There's at least a little bit something more there you know, you talked about just, like, the greedy capitalist dickhead of it all. That sort of thing at least has more interest there than just not even half-baked symbiotes. And they really, they don't even work as foils to Venom here. Like, we get to know them so little that there's just no interesting comparisons between these symbiotes, which you would think would be the thing you would do, but it just doesn't happen. So the next year, 1993, was the year where Marvel's gimmick in their annuals that year was each one is introducing a new big character who's going to be in the comics forever. So I get the feeling that this was just when Marvel kind of wanted every issue to introduce a new character because this was the big boom. They want to sell these comics so people are convinced that, you know, in 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 30 years, the first appearance of uh, Riot is going to be worth just as much as Action Comics number one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I think these five symbiotes are speculative bait. I think that's the perfect term for them, yeah. Which, on that note, you're making me think of... The 1990s Marvel trading card sets, where you would have the cards for the classics, the super popular characters, and then you would have the ones for the like B and C listers, 
where like it feels like a remnant of the time but still kind of cool and then you'll find a few cards for characters that will make even the most diehard fans go who the fuck is that like when you're flipping for your trading cards and you find oh okay here's wolverine here's storm okay okay here's cannonball here's cable and then you keep going and you get to some fucker from X-Men 2099 and you're like, who the fuck is that? I was going to say cruel. Literally, who the fuck is that? He's one of the externals. <laughs> He's the big dumb external. Speaking as someone who has been reading X-Men comics for over two decades, has consumed hundreds of them. Not to mention damn near any adaptation into any media. I'm still like, I only kind of vaguely know what the fuck an external is. All you need to know is that Cannonball actually isn't one of them. Yep. That's it. That's all you've got to worry about. <laughs> yeah. A bit like these symbiotes. The only one I think you have to worry about on any level is Scream. And I guess, I mean... If you're a big fan of the plot of the first Venom movie, Riot. Uh, I think the green guy is Lasher, and that's what I'm, I'm tapping out. I don't know the orange or pink ones. The pink one, I believe, is Agony, which just... that name. My other thing is, so they're meant to be a police force. Like, the whole idea of these Life Foundation is they think that the world is going to end... And so rich people will pay them lots and lots of money to be protected from the end of the world. And like, if the world's ended, why do you need money? But okay. Um, and so these guys are meant to be a police force to protect the like rich people in the post-apocalypse. And so I have a couple questions, which is A, symbiotes have such obvious and blatant weaknesses that like, if that's all you've got, that's a problem. Because as soon as someone figures out the whole thing about, like, using a microphone, they're fucked. And second, they don't look like a police force. They they all look like monsters. And I'm a little like, why did the suit have... Why, why are these people evil? Like, evil in that, like, big toothy way. Why do their suits not look like the suit did when it was on Spider-Man? Yeah. And then you could have a bit, like, they could have it under control, and then you could have the design shift as they go out of control, maybe. Because they're still, like, kind of bad people. But, like, I don't think that you would call the people when you're police for Scream, Riot, Agony, Lasher, and whatever the fucking orange guy is, Slicer or something? Who knows? The logic of it doesn't make sense to me. I feel like these guys were maybe written in at the last minute. Yeah. All these questions and ideas are things that you could do something with, but as is, are just among the many introduced and not at all actually delved into aspects of the comic. Flipping through these issues and just searching for anything that we haven't already mentioned that I want to note while we're talking about them this week. Going back to the drool of it all, there's this scene where Venom is 
like scaling a ceiling so he's upside down and we see like his drool dripping down from his mouth over like his eyes and the rest of his head and it just looks disgusting and I think that's very cool. We talked a bit about enjoying Bagley's work here and Lim just being at a disadvantage, having to follow up on him, having to follow up on his work. And yeah, we didn't really get into the specifics, but I think for me personally, Lim's work just looks a lot more lifeless in comparison. I don't know for sure if this is the case, but it also reads as, oh, this was probably relatively rushed schedule-wise. You know, I get that sense from both the work itself and then just also the shifting around of anchors and letterers and the lack of consistency of a set specific creative team in what is literally only a six-issue miniseries. And it was planned as a miniseries, too. That's I am confused as to how do you not get Bagley to do six issues straight? A, Bagley is the guy who was, I think, already at this point known for doing a ridiculously like long run on New Warriors. Like He likes to stay on a book for ages. B, Bagley's a fucking machine. He t- I think he was at this point in his life doing two books every month consistently which is nuts like i've talked about his run on ultimate spider-man that lasts for over 110 issues there's no fill-in artist on that it is just him there's not even issues where like he did layouts and someone else finished it every single main book for a hundred i think it was 111 issues was just him so i i, I don't know what happened did they pull bagley onto something else and so Lim had to come in at the last minute to replace him. I don't know. I, I do also think another reason I'm less fond of Lim's work is there's a slight Liefeldian influence on it. Like, Lim can still draw hands and feet well enough. I don't think he's as bad as I consider Liefeld, but he's definitely a little bit more in the Liefeld school of, like, drawing than Bagley is. Which, like, Liefeld was a huge hit at this time. I get it. I get wanting to do his style. But I'm just not a fan of it, personally. I don't even... That's not even necessarily a critique. It's just anything that's got, like, this way of drawing faces and some of these paneling choices just isn't going to land for me, even if, like, I can't say it's bad. There's a very specific sort of limited set of facial features and body sculpts on display you know in terms of there being a Liefeldian theme to it or a Liefeldian feel rather I mean like just the musculature on Eddie I think is very much giving that he gets bigger he gets way hulkier I was he he looks like Cable yeah and like a lot of the facial expressions like some of the stuff that Reese does when he's shouting like the the human expressions have that level of like exaggerated I think it's better than life out <laughs> like because this is competent and you know again he can draw hands and feet well enough <laughs> you know you don't see him trying to keep these things off panel or whatever like I don't think Lim is a bad artist I just don't think it's for me 
And I do think certainly at this point he was trying to capture that look and feel of Liefeld, which again in 1992 makes a lot of sense to do if you want to be a big well-known artist. Yeah. The shift is definitely giving the sense of some sort of editorial mismanagement, whether it being a sudden change of plans or giving so little time that even Bagley couldn't do it or... Oh god, I can't even imagine that, but yeah. Yeah, or like oh, did something like really terrible happen in Bagley's personal life midway through the making of this comic? You know, it's it's so abrupt that it's like something must have happened regardless of the nature of it. And part of my suspicion of like last minute changes even comes down to the coloration because even though it is the same colorist credited on the whole series, I think even the colors get worse. In the second half, we get some pages where just entire pages will be a sort of a wash of one color. Like I'm looking at a page right now where basically all of it is this sort of dull yellowish green and it just looks really flat in a way that's not interesting and just lacks dimension and is just more boring to look at than the opening issues, which, you know, I'm not saying they are the best coloring ever done in a comic book, but they just were much better comparatively. Yeah, I... I also do wish we got to see Bagley drawing the five symbiote characters, because unfortunately they don't debut until issue four, even though to me they look like Bagley designs. Like, I think Bagley did the designs for these characters. You know, I don't know that definitively, so I don't want to take credit away from Lim for, like, some of the stuff that we like, like Scream's look. But Scream looks like a Bagley character, and I would have loved to have seen her drawn by Bagley. Yeah, that's another aspect of them feeling kind of like duds is that we only get them in the downgraded art we don't get to see Bagley throw the full effort in on them I mean Scream especially like the if you look at the pattern of like the yellow versus red on her body and the like sort of oblong oval like organic circular shapes and the way it's broken up You'll see Bagley do that all the time. I mean, that that's carnage, but then also, like, just the shaping of these lines, if you ignore the organic um, shifting, it looks like some of the costumes, for ca- original costumes he's designed in, like, Ultimate Spider-Man, and the way it fits the form, like, it feels so much like a Bagley design that I'm like, there's no way this wasn't him, right? But, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the series comes down to just a feeling of what could have been, which we've been pretty down on a lot about this comic, you know? We've basically been like, the art gets a lot worse, Spider-Man doesn't necessarily need to be here as much, the new villains suck, there's too many villains, it all feels rushed. And I think all that's pretty much true, but 
I think I may be giving the impression that I like this comic less than I do because I do still quite like it. I think it is oh, quite I like fun. It. You know, like, I think the strength of the opening and the Bagley work still does a good job of just selling the idea of Venom as a central figure in a story. Rereading the first three issues, especially, I was like, oh, I actually quite like this one. I didn't like this when I first read it as part of my, like, big everything Spider-Man that was on Marvel Unlimited, like, ten years ago, starting read-through. But, um, reading this now, I enjoyed it more. I think that certainly the first three issues have a really fun energy to them. Yeah, I mean, it's just all in the the vibes, really. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna nail this down and say, oh, yes, this, this story's really interesting. I don't think it is. But I think that Eddie is made to be a much more fun character in just how... Again, it's how silly he is, but how seriously he takes himself. That really works. That was a great decision in shifting this character. The success or failure in Venom is all in the vibes, yeah. Although it's unfortunate in that the latter half ends up being all the weaker. I think the uneven nature of this sort of ends up making it a good portent or maybe accurate, I should say, more accurate portent of all the Venom comics to come and how frequently they are at best, mediocre, but with a lot of potential for fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's that's just generally my opinion of Venom these days, is I'm like, you know, I don't think he is inherently bad. He's just, frequently still is. Yeah. Was there anything in these that we didn't already touch on that you want to talk about before we wrap up? On page 13 of issue number two, there is a person who's wearing glasses where one lens is rectangular and one lens is like a perfect circle. And I want to slap them. But other than that, I think we've covered everything. Yeah, the jewelry and the eyewear on them is very strange and is not remarked upon at all, but it is very strange. I hate these two people. There's also, like, the whole commune in the underground past version of San Francisco where the, like, preacher-type character who is just this grumpy man of the cloth and nothing ever really comes of any of that, but he has an eye patch and he's just this really sinister-looking unaccepting preacher character who kind of seems like he's going to be a lot more of a big deal to the story than he actually is. Yeah, that guy existed. Uh, I am just now realizing we haven't at all mentioned that this series is the debut of Carl Brock, Eddie's, like, abusive piece of shit dad. Yeah, like, we get a little bit of the origin. It's fairly fast, like the rest of it. It's just... Oh, he was kind of an asshole. He was never there for Eddie. Like, he was financially supportive, but didn't approve of him, and nothing he ever did was good enough. 
So I guess it just kind of sets up more for Eddie not having a good upbringing and that contributing to him being just sort of a gigantic mess. But yeah. It's it's kind of the exact backstory you would expect when you look at Eddie. Like you look at Eddie and you're like, yes, absentee the absentee dad. That makes sense. But um it is notable but like because I know this is this is a big deal in Venom stuff now. So like started here the the slow seriousification of this character so that now there's um uh I don't know what's happening in the Al Ewing Ram V run on Venom. I I like kind of feel obliged to read it because it is Al Ewing and Ram V and they're both fantastic, but uh the motivation to read Venom comics is sometimes hard to find. Speaking as the larger Venom fan of the two of us, I concur. I also struggle to find the motivation frequently. It doesn't help that it's Brian Hitchcock. It really doesn't help. And I, I have affection for Brian Hitch, but I just haven't enjoyed any of his art from the past decade, unfortunately. Up until Ultimate Invasion worked for me, but that's because that was he was drawing the characters from Ultimates, and so it just wound up looking like Ultimates, which is the Brian Hitch art I have nostalgia for. So I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh look, it, it looks exactly like the comic from two decades ago that I thought was interesting. And I think still is interesting, but it is just incredibly messy and bizarre in early 2000s. But yeah, Venom continues to have successful solo series to this day. And I know all the drama right now is like the father-son stuff with his kid. So, yeah, that all starts here. Yeah, even if these issues are largely an inconsistent mess, they do manage to accomplish a pretty good amount. I will give the creators credit. They definitely lay a lot of the groundwork for giving him longevity. Yeah, I um I really like Michelini as a writer. Like I read his uh they did a omnibus of his work with Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man and I nabbed it because I uh, have a big love of the Inferno issues they did together. So this isn't the first time we've talked about Michelini. And I mean even when it's doing stuff that isn't Spider-Man stuff that I'm interested in, like there's a there's a big arc about Simcaria and like Silver Sable and Silver Sable normally just actively disinterests me. But it's all good. Like it's it was pretty much all good stuff. I it did help that it was McFarlane art, which whenever he's not drawing Venom, weirdly, I really like. I'm not a big fan of his approach to Venom, which is funny considering he created the character. That's but uh it yeah. sometimes. It it does happen occasionally, but um yeah, I think Michelini did a lot of good work in trying to turn this character from, you know, we're introducing Spider-Man's big antagonist to we're introducing Marvel's new hit solo superhero character. God, that's that's such a hard thing to do. It's like the turnaround they had to do with the Punisher, except Venom didn't even have a sympathetic backstory. You know, at least with Punisher, you kind of get it. With Venom, you didn't even have that at the time, and they almost immediately have to make this turnaround because, you know, three, maybe four stories in, 
he's getting a solo series. That's just how much he took off, which is insane to think about. See, I'm not the biggest fan of this series, but I, I have to be impressed by that because it is genuinely really impressive. Yeah, within the context of just how much they had to accomplish, they did pull off a good amount given all the difficulty before them. But with that said, that's Venom. That is our sexy gooey man. And you plan to have us talk about him some more next week, don't you? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I would call him sexy gooey man and what we're talking about next week. So we're going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man for the first time on this podcast. Specifically issues 33 to 39. Uh, more Matt Bach Bagley work, except he is going to be on all um seven issues. And yeah, this is the ultimate Spider-Man version of both the sim like black suit saga and its first and nearly only Venom story. Venom only shows up two more times in the Ultimate Universe, and only one more time as Eddie Brock. So this is the definitive Venom story of my childhood, and this is why I've had a hard time really liking this guy because uh spoiler alert, ultimate Eddie Brock is awful. He is the worst guy. This was also among the stories that I know was on your slate of things to cover, even in the absolute earliest days of the podcast. Like this was almost a single digit number episode, so we will be at last fulfilling one that has been in the queue for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's Ultimate Spider-Man, which is, I, I, as we've established here, my definitive childhood comic series. This is the one that got me into comics on a permanent basis. So we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about a lot, just just a lot. The 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 problem of Ultimate Spider-Man is that every single arc is you know, at the six to seven issues long. And the benefit of that is how much each arc is able to do. So look forward to that next week. In the meantime, thank you all for listening and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Excellent to each other.